afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Joining me right now is Dr. Daniel Williams. He is the author of Defenders of the Unborn, the Pro-Life Movement Before Roe v. Wade. He's professor of history at the University of West Georgia, and uh, his research focuses on the intersection between politics and religion in modern America. He's also the author of God's Own Party, GOP, The Making of the Christian Right. Dan, good to have you here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, out. Well, let's see. Uh, I love the way you begin the book, Defenders of the Unborn, the pro-life movement before Roe v. Wade. You start April 16th, 1972, with 10,000 people gathered in New York Central Park. They're protesting New York's very liberal abortion law. Uh, This is nine months before Roe v. Wade. If you went to... um, how how does that crowd in 1972 look different than what we might see today at a March for Life? I think it included a lot more uh, liberal Democrats. So it was a, a very ecumenical crowd. There were uh, Jews, uh, Protestants, but a lot of Catholics. Uh, and that's true today for the, uh, the pro-life movement. But I think what has changed uh, in the last 50 years is that uh, the pro-life movement has generally, not entirely, but generally allied itself uh, with the Republican Party. Sure. And in the early 1970s, it was not allied with the Republican Party. It was bipartisan, and a significant component uh, of the pro-life movement consisted of, of fairly liberal Democrats who believed that defending the unborn uh, was part of a progressive political agenda. Mm-hmm. So the the idea there being that America is a progressive nation in that she's always expanding the circle around those for whom we'll take responsibility. We're always broadening the definition of we the people. And so now we've done it with Jews. We've done it uh, with the franchise for women. We've done it uh, uh, for uh, African Americans. And now we should do it for the unborn. Is that kind of reasoning? Right. Uh, A lot of the people who were active in the pro-life movement in the early 1970s saw a direct parallel between their own movement and the civil rights movement for African-Americans in the 1960s. And they believed that the same uh, mechanisms that had uh, extended uh, political rights to previously marginalized groups, uh, that is, uh, through the Constitution uh, through claims of human rights and through um, expanded uh, government activism could be used to defend the unborn as well. Mm-hmm. Were Democrats generally more hospitable to pro-life concerns before Roe v. Wade uh, than Republicans? Um, yes. the uh, A majority of the earliest abortion liberalization bills uh, that were passed in states in the late 1960s and early 1970s were uh, signed into law by Republican governors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and among Democrats, some of the most prominent liberals in the country, including uh, at the time Senator Ted Kennedy, right. uh, and also um, people who were not in Congress but were um, prominent liberals like uh, civil rights activist Jesse Jackson, uh, were in support of the pro-life movement. That would change uh, later in the 1970s and 1980s. But uh, at the time, a significant number of liberal Democrats were 
supportive of protections for the unborn. When did that begin to change, and and what were the reasons for that? Because today, uh, a pro-life Democrat cannot expect to, you know, get support uh, for a federal position. Uh, You might be able to still do it at the state level, but not at the federal level. So what what began to change? The uh, the changes started in the mid-1970s, but would not become fully evident until the end of the 20th century. Uh, but what happened after Roe v. Wade was that the Democratic Party faced a dilemma between two groups of people who were both claiming uh, to have a, a human rights argument. One of those groups, of course, uh, were people who believed in the rights of the unborn, uh, pro-life activists, um, were especially strong in some of the Northeastern traditionally Democratic states Uh, at the time. About two-thirds of of Catholics uh, in the country uh, were Democrats. And while not all Catholics supported the Rights of Life movement, a significant number did. And so uh, states like Massachusetts and Rhode Island um, were actually very strongly pro-life in the early to mid-1970s, 1973 to 1975s. But on the other side, uh, in the Democratic Party, was an equally strong contingent, in fact, maybe even a, a politically stronger contingent of feminists, women's rights activists, who wanted to connect the women's rights cause to uh, the abortion rights cause. Uh, they believed that the two were inseparable. And so in 1976, the Democratic Party added language to its platform uh, endorsing Roe v. Wade. It was a, a rather modest endorsement at the time. Uh, compared to what the Democratic Party would later stand for. Um, The Democratic Party did not yet endorse uh, federal funding for abortion, but it did say uh, that since Roe v. Wade had been issued, they did not support efforts to overturn it by a constitutional amendment. And the Republican Party, even though it had a lot of uh, pro-choice politicians, including the Vice President of the United States, Nelson Rockefeller, and the First Lady, Betty Ford, uh, nevertheless uh, decided to... Uh, pick up some Catholic votes in the Northeast, they hoped, although it didn't actually work out for them, but they were hoping to to do that with uh, a platform statement that was essentially the opposite of what the Democrats had passed. This one uh, passed by the Republicans in 1976 endorsed the idea of an anti-abortion constitutional amendment. Hmm. But at the time, that probably would not have made a huge difference for uh, the parties. Both parties were divided between uh, people on both sides of the abortion debate. Uh, and, and as late as uh, the 1980s and even early 1990s, uh, there were a significant number of people in Congress who disagreed with their party's stance on the issue. In, in 1983, more than one third of Republican senators voted against a constitutional amendment proposal that would have uh, rescinded Roe v. Wade wow. and uh, returned abortion policy to the states. And as late as 1992, one-third of, of Democratic members of the House of Representatives ha- were considered pro-life, uh, had close to a 100% pro-life rating from the National Right to Life Committee. <laughs> so wow. it really wasn't until the end, of, the very end of the 20th century that it became apparent that one could not get elected to uh, national office um, by deviating from one's party platform yeah. on abortion. Yeah. 
Many years ago now, I interviewed Gloria Steinem on this question of abortion, and at that time she said that abortion was the sine qua non of the modern feminist movement. Uh, they they stood together. Uh, if you don't have a right to abortion, you don't have a modern feminist movement. Was that was that point made strongly within uh, by feminists within the Democratic Party? It was. Uh, Betty Friedan was a, a strong Democrat, so for that matter was Gloria Steinem. Um, and so in 1976, a number of, of feminists came to the Democratic National Convention uh, determined to try to get some sort of endorsement for their cause from the Democratic Party. Now, at the time, uh, the Democratic Party was not willing to to um, make this uh, a signature cause and say the way that the Equal Rights Amendment was a signature cause right. for the Democrats right. in the late 1970s. Um, but nevertheless, having staked their position on abortion uh, in the pro-choice camp, uh, the uh, the battle lines were drawn, so to speak, and over the next uh, decade or so, uh, it became clear what the direction of the Democratic Party would be. Mm-hmm. So there were, of course, um, a number of, of self-described feminists uh, in the pro-life movement who had a different interpretation of, of women's rights and what would be necessary to achieve them. Uh, but certainly the largest and most influential feminist organizations like the National Organization for Women uh, were strong supporters of abortion rights and um, were not really willing to back down on that issue. I just came across uh, an article in Slate, a piece in Slate, that that claimed that um, the modern religious right formed practically overnight excuse me, uh, let me rephrase that, that the religious right and uh, really formed not so much over the abortion issue, but over the, uh, uh, well, well, segregation of uh, Christian schools prior to Roe v. Wade, you know, before that. And, you know, I think about this, and I, I remember the constituency of the early uh, pro-life movement. I read about it uh, uh, I was conscious of the whole thing in the early 70s. And I say to myself, wait a minute. A lot of the early pro-lifers uh, were certainly not segregationists. They, they, they were advocates, um, you know, for civil rights. So where does this idea come from that the early conservatives kind of lost out on the segregation movement, so they decided to change their loyalties to abortion. What do you make of that? Yeah, well, I'm very familiar with that argument. I think it's um, mostly wrong. Uh, there's certainly some historical evidence to uh, to support one version of that, but I think I, I, I think there are several things to keep in mind. First of all, the pro life movement and the religious right were originally two distinct movements. They've since uh, largely merged to a certain extent, but uh, they had different origins. So the, the pro-life movement started uh, in the 1960s. It had uh, ideological origins going so- back several decades before that. But the, the first pro-life organizations started in the mid-1960s, and they were overwhelmingly Catholic in composition, though there were some Protestants and Jews that also joined uh, at the time as well. Um, but they tended to be grounded in uh, 
Catholic social teaching of the mid-20th century, that at least in their interpretation, which I would argue is a uh, legitimate, certainly a le- very legitimate interpretation, is um, very compatible uh, with, uh, with mid-20th century New Deal liberalism. That is, the yep. idea that the state has social obligations. Sure, Monsignor uh, Ryan, sure. Not, right, our goal is not uh, a libertarian state or even one that, that resembles um, that favored by many uh, Republicans today. Um, the religious right uh, emerged in the um, the late 1970s with Abigail the Protestants. And I can say more after the break. Yeah, let's take a break. We'll come back, Dan. Thanks very much. My guest, uh, Dr. Daniel Williams, author of Defenders of the Unborn, the pro-life movement before Roe v. Wade. Uh, we're also talking about the rise of the religious right. He's written a great book called God's Own Party, The Making of the Christian Right. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresto. With me, Dr. Daniel Williams. Before the break, we were talking about uh, the difference between the early pro-life movement, which had very strong Catholic constituency and uh, initiative, and the rise of the religious right, which uh, is often identified in the late 1970s uh, with the rise of the moral majority. Uh, the reason we're making this distinction is because uh, there are articles coming out now that is trying to, are trying to say it wasn't abortion that formed the religious right. It was support for segregation. Of course, for many of us, one of the reasons we were drawn into uh, conservative political movements was out of our pro-life concerns. So it's rather confusing for us. So before the break, you were distinguishing, again, the rise of the pro-life movement from the rise of the religious right. So take us back to the 1970s. Sure. So in the late 1970s, uh, evangelical Protestants, especially uh, in the South, were concerned about uh, the secularization of American society and the sexual revolution. Yeah. And so they were concerned about a wide variety of effects of those things, ranging from uh, the rising divorce rate, uh, the uh, rapid uh, spread of uh, pornography and X-rated movies, uh, and uh, among other things, abortion. So if, if you'd asked the typical evangelical Protestant of, say, 1977 or 1978 uh, what they thought about abortion, they, they probably would not uh, have been in favor of it, though they probably would have made uh, exceptions for rape and incest, as well as dangerous to a woman's life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but over the course of the late 1970s, abortion became an increasingly central issue for them, uh, and they looked back to Roe v. Wade as the symbol of what was wrong with America. And it, it made for a, a very persuasive symbol because uh, it combined their concerns about uh, the overreach of, of government, uh, of the federal government as they saw it, the uh, a liberal Supreme Court, uh, secularization of the nation, and the sexual revolution, uh, all wrapped up into this one package. Right. Uh, so I think that, that well, I would not say, uh, as, a, as a few people have, that uh, abortion was the reason for the mobilization of the Christian right. It's also incorrect, I think, to say that abortion was a smokescreen or something of that nature to disguise other uh, agenda yeah, items. Yeah. Uh, it, it was a sincere conviction 
on the part of, of the evangelical Protestants, right. even if they had not been particularly concerned about abortion at the same time that many Catholics were in the late 1960s and early 1970s. They thought they had good reason to be concerned about it uh, in the late 1970s uh, and 1980s. Yeah. But they tended to look at the issue a bit differently than Catholics. So the Catholics who had started the pro-life movement tended to have uh, a more comprehensive pro-life ideology. Some of them opposed uh, capital punishment, for example. Uh, many of them had uh, moral reservations about the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Uh, evangelical Protestants had a, a different set of political commitments. About 80% had voted for Richard Nixon in 1972. So when they became a dominant influence in the, in the pro-life movement, it was not too surprising uh, that the pro-life movement uh, accelerated its transition to the political right. Yeah. No, that makes that makes great sense to me. Uh, why don't you go ahead and, and tell us what, why is the segregation issue uh, often pointed to as the cause of the rise of the religious right? What, I mean, what what is the connection there? Yeah. Um, well, there was an IRS directive in the 1970s to uh, investigate private schools and rescind the uh, tax exemptions for uh, private schools that failed to meet the federal government's uh, civil rights guidelines. And so what that meant was that uh, if, a, if a private school had a, an enrollment um, a, a non-white uh, enrollment that was below the the percentage of non-whites living in the community mm-hmm. that that would that would be flagged. Yeah. That school would be flagged, and the school would then have to come up with a plan, uh, some sort of affirmative action plan, to uh, increase its minority enrollment. If it refused to do so, uh, it would lose its tax exemption um, because of its failure to comply with federal civil rights policy. Mm-hmm. So that uh, that greatly upset um, a lot of Christian schools. Sure. Uh, and the, the Christian school movement was uh, was rapidly growing among uh, conservative white evangelicals in the 1970s. Um, oh. There were about 5,000 Christian schools in existence at the end of the 1970s. And most of these schools at the time had very low minority enrollments. Uh, Later on, many of them would increase their minority enrollments, but at, at the time, uh, minority enrollments were generally low, some because they probably were segregation academies uh, in, in all but the name, uh, some because they simply um, were not very attractive to uh, many African-American students. After all, many of them were run out, um, out of, say, white Baptist churches. Uh, right. They offered a right. curriculum that was not really... Uh, in line with with what many African Americans wanted, uh, and so there were a variety of reasons why they might have uh, low minority enrollments. Yeah. Uh, but because of a mobilization on that issue, which really did occur, that is, some of the people involved in starting the moral majority, including Jerry Falwell, were very concerned about this. Right. Uh, so there was that mobilization um, that has um, that has been the main evidence that historians have used okay. to argue that the religious right mobilized on that issue. Okay, okay, very good. Uh, looking at the uh, pro-life movement you know, after Roe, and you know, after, now after Dobbs, uh, do you foresee any major changes in its constituency, uh, 
or even in its um, in the way it tells its story. Yeah, I think there will be some changes, and we're still trying to. I guess we're still living through the process of yeah, what exactly right. those changes will be. It seems like you know every day brings um, new surprises as to uh, exactly how how abortion policy is is playing out. You know, I for one never foresaw that that Wisconsin um, would uh, would ban abortion before Mississippi, for example. But that <laughs> seems to be the case uh, this week. So you know, there there are always um, surprises, and I. But I think what um, what we're seeing now is the culmination of a of a trend that goes back several decades, but that is not really in keeping with the trend of the pre row um, pro life movement, which is that it that abortion policy is today is very partisan. So um, even if there are some surprises uh, you know, based on technicalities of constitutional laws to which states um, might restrict abortion before others. The, the general trend today uh, certainly is that the more Republican the state is, the more likely they are to restrict abortion. The less Republican they are, the, right. the, the less likely. And, of course, there's a regional divide on the issue as well. Um, and that, that looks very different from the pre-Roe pro-life movement. But uh, for the last four decades, we could see trends moving uh, in that direction. So it's, it's not a particular surprise. Um, what I think the pro-life movement is going to have to do now which is a challenge that it's never had to face um, in 50 years, is to decide on, on what type of abortion policy it really wants. Uh, and that's currently uh, fracturing the movement to a certain extent. Um, one can see divisions between uh, the mainstream pro-life movement associated with the National Right to Life Committee, uh, for instance, and, which has always uh, opposed uh, criminal penalties for women, versus a grassroots, um, small but rapidly growing um, movement of, of abort, so-called abortion abolitionists who are wanting something very different. Um, in turn, on the left uh, wing of the pro-life movement, there are still some who would like to recover um, the ethic that uh, Cardinal Joseph Bernardine uh, proposed in the 1980s and that, that many of the uh, early pro-life activists proposed in, in the 1960s and early 1970s, which is to um, try to couple abortion uh, restrictions with with strong defenses of human life in other areas, including um, efforts to to fight poverty or to um, try to uh, uh, create some greater form of racial justice that would uh, reduce the abortion rate. So I, I think uh, before Roe v. Wade was rescinded, it was relatively easier, at least easier, to keep the movement together um, without directly addressing some of these these points of difference. But yeah, now that yeah. uh, the pro-life movement has to set policy in a number of states, these differences are going to um, to be much more significant. And that's the challenge that the pro-life movement will have to face now. Now, I'm going to, this question I know is, is speculative, but I'll ask it anyways. Would the abortion issue have become a major issue in American public life, had it not been for the advocacy of Catholics prior to Roe v. Wade? Well, uh, probably not, but it is sort of sort of difficult to imagine um, uh, a counterfactual of that nature, because assuming that the Catholics had not mobilized, there would have been no significant mobilization against abortion. Yeah. Um, before Roe, 
Uh, whether there would have been an evangelical Protestant movement after that is uncertain, because um, many of the early evangelical Protestants who mobilized against abortion uh, ultimately received a lot of their their arguments um, from uh, Catholic pro-life activists. So sure. for evangelicals in the late 1970s, they were getting uh, some of their arguments from Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer, in turn, was, was getting some of his arguments from uh, Malcolm Muggeridge, uh, an English journalist who was, uh, you know, very conversant with with Catholic pro life theology. So, uh, I think uh, it's it's really difficult to imagine um, uh, a world in which there was no uh, no Catholic voice uh, in defense of the unborn. And then. Uh, let me ask about the Democrat involvement here. There is a small group called Democrats for Life that remain faithful to the pro-life cause and have been trying to uh, gain greater legitimacy within the Democrat Party. Do, do you, again, I'm asking you to look at the future here, do you see uh, any plausible way in which the pro-life cause could uh, get rooted in the Democrat Party again? Well, I think that in terms of abortion restrictions or abortion prohibitions, the chance of that happening uh, at any point in the foreseeable future in the Democratic Party is is zero. I think the whatever chance there might have been before this um, tended to evaporate with changes uh, in the Supreme Court with the, the Trump presidency and, of course, now with Dobbs, uh, all of which were strongly opposed by Democrats. Right. So the idea that a, a Democrat would come out uh, in support of abortion restrictions at the national level, um, at least this year or at any point in the foreseeable future, is unthinkable. Um, however, I think that if pro-lifers are concentrating instead at, uh, in their conversations with Democrats um, on changes in social policy that might reduce the abortion rate, uh, I suspect there would be much greater common ground. And in the early mm-hmm. mid-1970s, there were several pro-lifers like um, uh, Sergeant Shriver and his wife, Eunice Kennedy Shriver, mm-hmm. uh, Marjorie Mecklenburg, and others that uh, essentially wanted to do that, that wanted a pro-life movement that was focused on bringing down the abortion rate by expanding social services. And I think that uh, there could be common ground with Democrats um, on that particular question. Um, and at least for the moment, in our highly um, polarized partisan environment. Um, that's probably the best that that evangelical. I mean, that, that uh, pro-life uh, activists could hope for in their uh, conversation with Democratic politicians. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes that makes sense to me. Well, let me thank you so much, uh, Dan, for being with us today. Very helpful. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate the book, Defenders of the Unborn, and also uh, you know, the uh, book, God's Own Party, The Making of the Christian Right. Uh, are you working on anything? I, I assume you're working on something now for the future. Yeah, uh, I am. Yeah, I just I just published last year the uh, book, The Politics of the Cross, A Christian Alternative to Partisanship, and um, I'm beginning a project on uh, tracing religiously influenced attitudes uh, on abortion on both sides of the debate. So I'll, I'll keep writing about this subject. Very good. Well, I uh, hope we can call you again in the future. Well, thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, again, Daniel K. Williams, Defenders of the Unborn, the pro-life movement before Roe v. Wade, and uh, uh, then the other one, God's Own Party, the making of the Christian right, and this other newest book sounds interesting, too, Politics of the Cross which I'm looking forward to taking a look at. I'm Al Cresta.